Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Do you know what the difference is between Adolf Hitler and Al Capone? Hitler's dead. Capone lives like a king in Florida. He has full-blown dementia. I have reason to believe that could all be an elaborate act. What's this about? We have information that your client may have tucked away a very large sum of money. You can drop the act now. You got goons. Wow. 
walking around. Wake up, everybody. It's the film board from the next reel on rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies. This month, we're still on the couch and desperately awaiting new release dates for all the big movies poised for release around the world. Some have been trickling out into theater at home releases, and we're trying to capture them as they come out so that you can hear all about the abbreviated entertainment industry in this pandemic era. So until we can get back safely into our beloved theaters, you can count on the film board to give you a monthly dose of streaming movie medicine. Capone, that's what we're talking about today. Capone was released to the various online outlets on May 12th and set some records for streaming rentals. At least that's what the company that put it out will tell you. It's got some really big names in it with uh, Tom Hardy as Capone and Matt Dillon, Linda Carlini, and Kyle MacLachlan too. And with the lack of new film fodder out there in the world right now, you may have an interest in testing this one out. So here today, we're going to spoil the heck out of the bed they're sleeping in so you can get a sense if it's right for you. (laughs) Foreshadowing. Uh, Today's movie experience is different, but our spoilers remain the same. And you can find out all about the details of about the Next Reel's party of podcasts at thenextreel.com. There you'll see that the best way to support our ongoing efforts to talk about the entire motion picture medium is over at patreon.com slash thenextreel. Subscriptions there help us keep the conversation going here on your favorite podcast platform and everywhere else in the world. Okay, let's introduce our hosts tonight. Let's talk about everybody's advanced directives with Pete Wright. <laughs> that's that's about right when we're talking about uh, i was looking for the right quote that is a good quote i don't know how to spell it though so we're going to do something that's a little more uh verbal for the quote on the film okay uh how do you feel about euthanasia steve sarmento um, after this film, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I am JJ and I sprung those, you know, medical things on these guys a little bit because, wow, this is not a gangster movie, right? It's Capone, but it's not a gangster movie. It, people are, of course, captivated by the life and travails of Al Capone, but this is a movie about senility and deterioration. And I am totally getting ahead of myself here a bit, but I usually let these guys tell you their initial thoughts first. So uh, how was Capone for you, Steve? I couldn't figure out what genre this film was. And that was my biggest Fair. challenge of trying to figure out what this film was. Cause I had expectations because I did watch the trailer because I think it was somebody's trailer pick. That's rare. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, definitely. I think it might've been mine. Right. I don't know. Okay. It may have been. And so, and so we talked about this. I was familiar with the trailer, but I had an expectation of one type of film and it gave me something else and then something else and something else. And I think <laughs> that's my biggest challenge with this is it couldn't figure out what type of movie it wanted to be. Those are a few something else's there. Um, and that seems like a fairly benign initial thought for uh, what <laughs> could be yet to come. Okay, uh, Pete, h- how did Capone sit with you? Okay, so it's a movie that I feel like I, I went in curious. I, I was not really provoked by the trailer, I, just in terms of the fact that I there are a lot of people involved that I, I really like. Um, but I thought that the concept, the conceit of the film, choosing this last year of Capone's life uh, in the context of telling like a mystery thriller, that's kind of what the trailer sets up, sets us up for, I thought was really weird. Why would they pick the like a, a boring, 
like sort of slow. Like they must have found something about Capone that I don't know <laughs> to make this movie interesting. And right, I, they must know, have. They must have. And it turns out uh, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. And I think you bring up a good point because the trailer does set up something completely different than what's on the screen. Yeah. It, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's interesting that you weren't particularly captivated by the trailer, even though it was your pick for a set mat. <laughs> well, but and you I, know, sometimes I pick these trailers for the set mat because they, they provoke me in a different way. And this one I was provoked because, you know, we've had some fun talking about Child 44 and also Quarantine and Josh Trank and his legendary self-review of Fantastic Four. And I really loved Chronicle and like... Is this a movie that's going to bolster all of them? I wonder. Let's put it on the set and see. <laughs> yeah, and so we took that and we said, let's put it on a film board and see. And I think right. we're going to... I don't know how fine tooth our comb is going to be on this, but uh, but uh, we're going to have to dig a bit to get through this one. Okay, here, uh, let me give a quick synopsis. Um, Al Capone is 48. 48, and has deteriorated in health with a condition called neurosyphilis, which, not so fun fact here, is a central nervous system affliction that develops in patients with advanced syphilis, and in today's world, it actually happens to AIDS patients. He, uh, in this time, has suffered a stroke, so the authorities have released it. Oh, gosh, I'm already just, yes, this is what this movie is about. He's suffered a stroke. <laughs> so the authorities have released him from jail to his residence in Florida. He is hallucinating. He's paranoid. He's hidden some money. So, of course, now it's lost to him. The government is trying to find out where it's hidden. And his home and family are crumbling around him. Or is any of this even happening? Do we know? <laughs> that is kind of a central question. Right? He's hallucinating. That's accurate. We yeah. know that's happening. Yes. So it's a little confusing to him and to us too, us in the audience. It's confusing to us too. Uh, this is this is my this is my initial thought and my quick synopsis. I need yes. help with this one, guys. So, uh, okay, what w what is the message of this story? Why was it made? I don't. I don't know. I that it comes back to the question of what are they trying to say? What are yeah. they trying to do? Because going back to the trailer, it's set up as this like cat and mouse with the FBI, and we we get a hint of that even with the doctor played by Kyle McLaughlin. Because there's a piece where they're like they've he's done something and he's he's brokered some deal and he's supposed to be getting some information. We have like one scene of that where he's having Al draw you know pictures and he's you know holding up you know the platypus picture and then the bag of money and trying to. But that's it. We don't get anything else out of that. And then the one scene from the trailer that was like the FBI agent interviewing him is like in the last 20 minutes of the movie. So we don't even have that at all. So I feel like if there if that was a part of the story, it got cut out someplace for some reason to to focus on a like half hour long hallucination sequence, which is interesting. And, and visually, there were some interesting things that I was engaged in somewhat entertained by that, but that isn't enough to support a whole story. So I don't know that there was any, that I guess my biggest frustration is, I don't know if this is supposed to be a morality tale about, uh, you know, oh, when you, when you hold all those lies and it starts to eat at you, is it something about that? Because that, that's one point. Is it about family? I, I don't know. That's, that's the issue is it doesn't fully embrace any one thing and then falls short in all of them because it just can't commit to, to one thing at all. We talk about the hallucinations and all that, but 
the beginning of the movie starts off with what was kind of compelling of Al's stalking in his house because he hears something. Turns out he's playing hide and seek with the kids. So that's our sort of like, oh, he's a he's he's not this, you know, angry, violent gangster. He's a he's a family man and he's out in the yard with the kids and all that. And it's Thanksgiving dinner and he's he's coherent and lucid. I thought that, that was exceptional. That all- I thought that was right. exceptional. I thought that was a great way to start the movie. Yes, yeah, it was. I felt great for everything... about forty-five seconds, and then it goes off the rails because then I I have no sense of time. That's the other piece until we get the Thanksgiving dinner at the end, because he's he's falling apart. But I don't have a sense because it's Florida. We have no seasons. How fast you know does he start losing it mentally? All of a sudden, we lose. He's losing touch with reality. And this movie is not Shutter Island. You know, a movie that is a great mind bender that will play with that. This one is nowhere near that league because there's there's no rules to any of this. That's the that is my central issue here. But I gotta I, I want to go back to this to this other point about like where we put the character in his life because that is a a central failing of the movie for me because we've we like it, it's this moody brooding sort of drama about this this point in a man's life that that without great consideration doesn't really merit attention right it's dark it's filthy it's full of regret if, if you're going to do this story about this point in a man's life it's got to be in the context of something greater. And I cannot think of a movie that does this any better than Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which mm. is a movie I've only seen a handful of times, very few times. The last time I watched it, we did it for the show like eight years ago. And okay. But that movie sticks with me, right? If you don't remember, it's a story of a, a publisher uh, in France. It's a true story. He is in a, a horrible car accident in his convertible, and he is rendered uh, it locked in, right? His body is, gives up on him, and all he has are his... His eye, uh, his his uh, blinks. He can move his his twitches eyes, and that movie is dark and hard to watch. And it is captivating because it goes somewhere. At the end, we see that he has written a book with eye twitches, thanks to his speech pathologist. And that is an incredibly rewarding journey, right? They discovered something there that gives me something to love and hang on to and celebrate. Back to Capone, we kind of already know that the mysterious millions were never found. We know there's no money. We knew that going in. We know everything there is to know about this movie. So what was it that they latched onto? We know he's been watched by the police through the end of his days. We know all of this. There was no story. There was no nugget. There was nothing to hang our hats on. And this is my central point. I swear I'll shut up. This is why I thought Steve might find something to latch on to. So, obviously, I'm on the record that this film isn't for me. But if I put on my Steve hat, it it nails this portrait of this haunted, hunting sort of predator of a man uh, as he is transformed into this empty vessel, right? He is a victim of his own life. The horrors that he has wrought and brought onto so many people, like his, this is the lifelong debt of violence that is finally called. And we get that middle section that just nails that point. And so if you're a hardcore character person, if that's why you saw this movie, then I think you might find something resonant in here. So I didn't, I, but you might. Well, and I don't want to disagree with you because I think I think you guys are right in this idea that how hard dementia or 
aging or stroke victims, how hard it is for them to battle reality versus non-reality is complicated by the type of man that Al Capone was. I think that's actually a captivating story. If you tell it like a story, this had no story elements. The complicating incident was before the film started. There are no, there is no momentum throughout the film. There is no actual climax. There is just random asides that, you know, we've, we've kind of talked about. You cannot tell if these are real. The, the, the idea about the, the children at the beginning that, you know, this menacing thing with some, some suspense and drama that it turns out he's a family, you know, and, and with the family and all this kind of thing, they replay it later with him absent from it. And you see, I guess that's for passage of time. But while you're questioning reality throughout the film, because you're being led through it by an unreliable narrator, you have no idea what's true and what's not. And when you do, when we are presented with fictional characters, they have, confusing elements that are not that don't make any sense for the fiction it's just it's uh, it's it's a terribly confusing fugue and maybe that's the point but what it, it, in terms of why it was made, um, you know, I, I mentioned it's like a fugue. What Josh Trank talked about with this is that it was a spec script that he wrote after he lost creative control of the Fantastic Four. And, it, it, you know, and then when he was set up to do the Boba Fett standalone movie and he walked out because it was like he saw a mess coming, you know, I, and then he said that he sat, he sat on a lawn chair in his backyard for, for six months and gained 60 pounds. And, you know, this is when he wrote this thing. You see that in this film, but it's not, it's not a story. It's There's no finished. story here. It's not finished. It's not. It honestly feels like it's not really started, right? Yeah. When you hear that it's a spec <laughs> script, you yeah. see the concept of an idea, but there's no execution here. And it and it was pulled. It was pulled along by some interesting performances by great actors. Mm-hmm. But there's really nothing to this movie. And it's it, and I don't know what they're doing. I mean, is it is it compelling to people because it's a gangster? I mean, I don't really care about gangsters either, but it's not a gangster movie. It's it's about dying. I, it's the is, you wouldn't call it the uh, the tree of life of mob films. <laughs> Steve <laughs> shaking my fist, shaking my fist. No, I no because like I said, I, I put this more alongside. I'm going to always come back to Shutter Island because you have yeah. a character that's a losing choice. track of of reality. And to me, that where things went really wrong, where I felt really betrayed, because I'm I'm willing to either fully trust the narrative and it's gonna it's gonna give me some, you know, I'm gonna go along with it, or you're gonna do something wrong. And it's gonna cause me to question every single moment. And it comes down to this: we have this character played by Matt Dillon, and we there's a scene that reveals he's not there. Which is fine. That's, you know, we know Al's, you know, hallucinating or whatever. The problem is there is a scene when that character is introduced that is someplace, somewhere completely else. And that is the, if Al's hallucinating somebody else having sex with a woman, answering a phone call saying, hey, I've got to go to Florida to visit Al, that makes no sense (laughs) to me at all. It's the most nonsensical Everything else he's hallucinating (laughs) takes place there in Florida. That so what is what is that? There's no context right. to the hallucination. It like no. Uh, well, and you bring up Shutter Island. I think Shutter Island's fantastic, but Shutter oh, Island, yeah. the story is Dennis Lehane, 
right? Like, yes, it's yes. an adapted screenplay. So you that's where you get a great author turning in a, 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 an exciting, compelling novel into a film. This is what it, uh, yeah, this, there's no basis for understanding in this movie. Yes. Well, so, get, and, get, and, do we uh, get that all out of our systems? <laughs> well, I don't think so. I have oh. to say, I, 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 I've said this anecdote before about this movie because it's just, it's infuriated me. But really, watching this movie was like watching my mom die if she was a gangster. Like it, there, there was no, there yeah. was no joy. There was no interest. There was just weakness and frustration. And, and I, those kinds of movies are fine, right? I mean, I'm, I, yeah. I know I'm, I, they might not be fine. Again, it's not for me. That's fine. But right. I know that character studies of that, that live in grief are fine. They exist and they, they can be wonderful movies. In this yes. one, I worry a little bit because there was no celebration, and I'm I'm really glad that you brought that point up about your mom, JJ, because I was thinking about mm. you as as I was watching this movie, sure, um, knowing what you experienced. That when you suck the narrative part out of a movie and just leave us with this portrait and nothing else to kind of hang on to, is that a disrespectful thing to do to people who have suffered with it and caregivers of those people? Like, I think yes. Does this end up being a disrespectful movie? I think yes. I think it's just uh, to both. I mean, what's where's the where is the depth of emotion in this? There isn't. It's it's it, it, at best it's an apology, right? It's an apology for how bad Al Capone had it in his last year. That's that's all I can imagine. Yeah. But like you don't you bring up the caregivers like they they're given no there's no depth of character for them either. There's nothing here. In spite to of, onto. I would say, Linda Cardellini doing her best oh. to suck a little bit of energy out of the out of her part. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we get we get glimpses of her. I think that the exchange where she smacks him uh, around and he mm. spits on her, yeah. uh, it's it's brief, but she's in it. You can tell yeah. she is in it, and yes. and I adore and, Linda Cardellini. I think she's fantastic. And the post slap scene of her weeping at his bed. I mean that yeah. that's heavy. It's heavy, but it's not. Again, it's not part of the story. It's just part of the deterioration. Right. And and that sort of character study is fine to watch great actors doing hard things emotionally on screen is a, a reason to celebrate in and of itself. And that's one of the reasons that I'm conflicted about this movie, because, you know, Tom Hardy put himself up there. I mean, yeah. hard. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and there mm -hmm. is there is reason to give him. Uh, some some real credit for what he was doing. I, I did have trouble, I think, with some of his portrayal because it felt like a radio station that wasn't always like able to tune in. Uh, That's uh, ironic. You know, they and, actually do that multiple times in the film. Yeah. Hallucinations on radio yeah. that are not quite tuned in. No, anyway. Yes. Um, well, and that's it. Yeah. And so, but but I think his, you know, the character makeup. I I did not find his performance was transcendent to the point of me forgetting it was Tom Hardy. And some of those big makeup performances, yeah. you you get that experience. I didn't mm -hmm. get that here. Yeah, that's yeah. Now I really liked it. I did find it it was transformative. I but I'm 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 a huge Tom Hardy apologist, and I think for the people who are middle of the road on Tom Hardy or go or go positive and negative yeah. with him, I think this is going to show up as a negative one. This is going to be like you said in your introduction, Pete. This is going to be <laughs> one of those that people kind of mock. In mm -hmm. terms of his delivery, um, but I think I, I mean I just admire the guy so much for fully committing to everything he does when he's yeah. on screen. 
And I, I, I will see, I, I, I don't mind. I wanted to see this movie became because before it came out, because I wanted to see what he did with it. And I'm, yes. I, I'm, I was satisfied with his, gosh, the stuff he was doing. Just amazing. Intense. Well, the, Yes, the the one and Pete, you sort of touched on this the the whole uh, you know dealing with the history of, of of violence in his life. The scene at the dinner table when Gino's sitting down and he's cutting into his steak. That moment there that that harkens back to the hallucination, all of that. I mean, that's another one of those moments where I thought there's such great potential in this if we if we crack it open and, and dig into those moments because that was a powerful scene of cutting the steak and the flashback to seeing Gino just you know oh just horribly just gouging into someone's neck with a knife and the his reaction in that hallucination of what have I created what you know th- these are the people that you know are his people look at this horrible violence. Um, there seemed to be some remorse. There was there was something there, but the story never it never pushed into that. It never leaned into that more. And for and I think that's the film that I would have really loved to have seen because that gives us you know going back to Pete's question, why? What is this really about? And that would be it. And that's the, I, perhaps the most frustrating thing for me about this movie is it's got such great potential. There are those moments there, and I think. I see why this cast may have signed on for these things because there are those pieces. And I, I wonder if there was more script. It feels like, as I said, there are pieces that were, were, were cut down or edited out for whatever reason, but there is such great potential. But unfortunately, it doesn't come together as a coherent whole film. Can, can I ask you guys what you expected? Like, and, and I'm not, I don't want to do a, you know, fix the movie segment here, mm. right? That's, mm. that's not my intention, but I really yeah. am curious at given points in the film, uh, in in the first act of the film, uh, I would say before the second act, you know, opera of regret, uh, what did you expect the movie to unveil for you by the end? Like, what what did you see coming? What, are you talking well, about what if, on view of the trailer? Is that the thing? Well, I, I, mean, I just mean the movie opens and we see him. We know he's he's deteriorating, uh, but he hasn't had his stroke yet. He hasn't mm-hmm. gone into so into his head that we no longer know what's happening. But we know that there is money hidden. We know that the police are watching him. We know that there's some intrigue building around these two bodies, right? The the law enforcement community and the Capone estate. What did you expect to happen? What it sets itself up for early on is we get a lot of the the paranoia piece. And I'm, you know, are are they really out there watching him? Are they, you know, is he hallucinating the people out there? Or is are, is he really under surveillance? And we know there is some surveillance. And I'll come to one of the oddest surveillance moments in the movie in a, in a bit. But that's what I really wanted to, to get to was that exploration of, you know, and it gets into the whole mind game piece a little bit, but is he really, are they really still out to get him or not? And and the dynamic that and stress that that would create and tension between himself and his family, himself and his, you know, his crew that's there, his, his, his bodyguards, you know, all of that creates this dynamic of they may not believe him, but if he's believes that this is what's going on, to me, there's some great tension in, in a dynamic for a story in terms of, he feels that he's got a grasp on reality and he's going to fight for that and everybody's going to be against him. And that creates some some back and forth that, that didn't really exist. It feels like it wanted to it wanted to go there. And that's what I was expecting. When you think of Al Capone, who was, you know, he was the 
in charge of of everything, you know. And now the you know we even have that moment with the doctor saying, "Hey, you know, taking all of this stuff out that maybe you know that's not a good thing. We we need to keep some some stability around him." And for somebody that's aging and seeing their life changing and their world changing. That's that's a frightening thing, and we could have leaned into that, and and for him to grasp what was familiar for, to him, which was it's me versus the FBI. That's that's his comfort zone. That's where that's the base that he can always come back to. That's his point of strength. That's what that's what I was expecting the story to get into. Yeah, I and, think, and the yeah. and the battle, yeah, the battle of him having to to you know get to the point of. Does he cling to that or does he have to let that go just as he's letting go of the statues and all the other things that represent his, you know, his kingdom, basically. His identity. Yeah, his identity. Yeah. I felt like, you know, for me, I always go to a little bit more, I think, basic <laughs> narrative. Uh, but but to Steve's point, the conflict, I, I wanted some conflict between these bodies. Although, of course, we have now set a new rule for the movie that if Matt Dillon can have sex in another town... Uh, and have that be ostensibly <laughs> part of his hallucination, maybe the entire FBI and all of the meetings the FBI holds when they're not at his house are also part of his fantasy. And then the movie is solved. It is what? the entire thing what? is actually Capone's inner cinematic. We assume Kyle MacLachlan is real. We assume the doctor is real. Right. Yes. But we do. do but have to. but as long be. as Matt Dillon can have sex and be fake, yeah. then right? maybe... The doctor is fake too. Well, or I know a, we I know he's not fake because it's the movie's no. breaking its own rules. I, I absolutely right. know as I say that. I'm I'm joking. But, but the but hypothetical climax yes. when Capone gets the gun and mm-hmm. and shoots his gardener. Right. And mm-hmm. then goes on a rampage and shoots all of the people who are there seemingly to protect yeah. him because he's hallucinating that he's hallucinating. And then he didn't go on the rampage, but he actually did shoot the gardener. Uh-huh. Right? What? When? Oh, how? Where's the break? Yeah. I, I, what's yes. the real and what's the not real? Like he's he's hallucinating that he is hallucinating that. G- oh, it's so maddening. Well, which which gets to the point of for me, I thought, okay, we've got the fact that he's paranoid. He thinks he's seeing people out in the swamps and all that. So when he goes into the bathroom and there's somebody in the bathroom, we saw I that. thought, if this guy's that paranoid, you know, that scene made sense if we had a dynamic set up where he would, his perception was being questioned by his family. But for a guy that's paranoid and, and knows that he's seeing the FBI out there with their binoculars and he walks in and there's some guy in his bathroom in the bathtub and he just looks at the guy and walks out. I thought, I, this is so inconsistent. I do yeah. not understand. There was, I have no basis for understanding his reaction to this at all. Did you, did you, how did you make that canon in your head? Was the guy real or was he a hallucination? I, I at that point, because I had to assume that he was real because we hadn't had any imaginary characters yet. Right. And because we see I can't remember. Was it Gino now who actually unlocks yeah. the door when we have the flashing light yes. signal from across right. the lake? Yeah. So right. there is yeah. some sort of collusion going on between who is in the house and who is not. We know that there's somebody's coming in to bug the house now. And he's discovered by Capone, who can't trust himself. And so he sees this thing, ostensibly sees it, and then doesn't trust it and doesn't say anything about it. That's that's where I was. And I thought, that's a clever way to do this. That's a clever way to demonstrate it. 
But right. what made you think that he was questioning that? Because we'd never see, had any indication that oh. he was questioning the reality of anything else. So why would he have to question this guy standing here in his bathtub? Steve, I think it's very clear that it's because I was rewriting the movie as I was watching it. <laughs> okay, sure. So yeah. I had to normalize things that don't make sense so that I could find some joy minute by minute. <laughs> Right? There we go. There we go. There's Pete's new podcast, Joy Minute by Minute. He's rewriting the movies and re recontextualizing them as we go. As we go. <laughs> I, I, I need to go back to the gun scene again because I'm I, I got tripped up. <laughs> I got confused. Moved on. I just I just shotgunned no. a bunch of questions that were one words. But really, Steve, you crystallized this for me that he is hallucinating and paranoid that he is worried about seeing things. And in that scene, he is hallucinating that he is actually someplace and still doesn't recognize the people that he is supposed to know and love. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have no sense, like through all yeah. of these hallucinations, that he is not able to see, like we don't have any visual of him looking at someone and and not recognizing them to the point that he would shoot them. Right. 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 There is that nope. one part where Matt Dillon cuts out his own eyes. That was right. a hallucination. Gosh. What yes. was that about? Well, Why? What is Why? that? What's the message? <laughs> because if you look into the eyes, you will find the key. Empathy. He was looking. It was a movie. Of, it, it's a sequence about empathy. It's a sequence about, you know, look through these eyes. Yeah. And, and and I think that's a, you know, it, yeah. it's the movie wearing its own metaphor, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit too heavily on its sleeve. Be careful how mm -hmm. deeply you read into metaphor, because when you watch yeah. Capone defecate in his own bed, oh. believe me, there is a metaphor in there for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's another thing that didn't get paid off. I, I don't want to just keep down the line of the yeah. things here, but the boy with the balloon. Was that him? Is that him? I don't know. I thought that was him why, as a youth. Why? Well, then who was, why was he hallucinating himself as a, when he was floating in the river outside the little house, but he, at that point, he, that Capone's bald at that point. Right. Capone, was, was it just me or was Capone bald, was bald wearing like, wearing like a brown leather jacket, like floating in the river and the kid comes by and I thought, okay, so the kid, okay, if we track the kid through, there's yes. multiple times, but before Capone, you know, the bed, the, the kid's there, but he's all like beat up so for a while i thought that was capone's guilt of something he did as a younger man to get started like he did something to some some young boy rewriting um, the movie yep. that was yep. the start of something that was the seed of something and, and to me as a man looking back and reevaluating his life he could key everything to the point of I, this is the first bad thing he did Sure. That's what I was hoping for, because that's the only thing I could make sense of. Why does it, he keep coming back to this kid? It, it represents something that he is trying to reconcile and struggle with. But unfortunately, I, I don't get that that payoff. Right. There's no of, rosebud of that is. in this movie. I get I get that, too. I just and then the scene with supposedly the child's mother coming on to mm -hmm. him and then being killed in a drive by shooting. Right. While she is on top oh, of dear. him. Yeah, it's I don't know. Just a, and then what about Tony? Is Tony real? Tony. He keeps calling from Cleveland? Tony. Oh, yes. Right? Well, that is, is a great Tony question real? because he's introduced by his his wife who is, uh, you know, purportedly real. And the at the end of the movie, we have them holding hands as the movie, as we have that slow pullback uh, and they're looking out over the empty lawn. But, the, but then who's Tony? 
Tony was the <laughs> son of the, you know, with the prostitute. Was he? So he's no, Tony's, Tony's the boy with the balloon. The kid. Maybe. Tony's the kid with the balloon. Maybe Tony's <gasps> the kid with the balloon. Here's the thing about the kid with the balloon. The way they used the kid with the balloon was a distinctly horror trope, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that is so stupidly unfair in this movie. Steve, you're gesticulating. Wait, wait. No, I no, because this was the other thought that struck me, because you're right, it is a horror trope. And I thought if this movie, if they You'll had played too. this as a horror movie. Al Capone horror movie yeah. of he's losing touch on reality and just gone really deep into the horror tropes with this of like struggling with dementia and all that and gone horror. This would have been a far more entertaining movie of, yeah. a, you know, talking about the, the, you know, being haunted by demons, you know, that are of demons. His past, <laughs> yeah, right. literally, you know, whether they are or not physically, but I thought that totally would have been really, really neat. You know, let's fix the movie. But I thought the same thing because it was early on when they came with the balloon. And for me, it's probably because I saw like The Exorcist on, you know, broadcast TV in like fourth grade and it traumatized me. But children, creepy children in movies, it just, ah, that's one of those things. I can't, it just yeah. gets to me. It's my Salem's it, lot. It just pushes the buttons and mm-hmm. it's like, this is getting creepy. This is, and, I, and I start to get all JJ. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> is the kid going to do something? Is his face going to fall apart? What's going to happen? I don't know. You'll float too. You'll float He'll too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> With a balloon. The gold balloon. gold. Showing up in paintings. Yeah. And oh, it's yes. so wild. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I Josh Trank is the director here. Um, I want... I, I want I want him to be able to keep trying. This is this is a yeah. This is a tough haul though, and and I mean if I go back to the whole world of the X Men, like he in the is that Sony? No, that's Fox that owned Fantastic yeah. Four, yeah. and they did the reboot. He he wrote he wrote and directed the reboot before he was took taken the creative control yeah. was taken away from him. But I just gotta think, you know, like I look at that reboot too, and I think why that. You know, I mean, that's the one with uh, Michael B. Jordan as the Human Torch. That's one of the examples, though, of a young up and coming director who had some some real vision. And we've talked about this right as that that spate of titles came out that were all young upcoming directors who were given who who went from having, you know, a half a million dollar budget to a two hundred million dollar budget for their movies. And. Uh, and that's a turns out that's a significant difference. And yeah. uh, it, it's a lot more water to carry. And, it, you know, he uh, somebody did not trust him and what he was able to come up with for Fantastic Four. I'm with you. I worry about him. Chronicle, I adored. I had a blast with that movie. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know this. I'm feeling tested. This was a this was a tough one for sure. Uh, and I and it's not again. We've talked about interesting concepts that could come from this movie, and this is his writing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if we give him the benefit of the doubt on Fantastic Four, he just had a new direction with that, right? So, yeah. so like, don't give up. Don't go back in the backyard. Yeah. No, and no, I mean, there's there's potential in here. There there are these moments. I mean, the the other standout moment for me is yeah, at the end of the big shooting spree when he's in the swamp and the alligators there and all of a sudden the water pulls away and it's this huge wave that crests down over him and he's under the water with the dollar bills floating around. That sequence there really stuck out stuck out to me visually and I thought I don't know what this all means but this worked for what it, you know, for just creating some visual spectacle and, and doing something in isolation from story. So there's, there's, there's moments. It's almost like, I mean, 
it's a spec script. It's like, here's, here's, here's my, uh, here's my reel. Here's, I got some horror stuff I can do. I can do this. It's like a whole sort of collage of, of things. And some, some work in isolation by themselves really, really well. And I think that's the one takeaway I'll have from this is it, to me, it still shows his talent as, as a, as a filmmaker to be able to put, put some things together. Perhaps, you know, this story needed some more work, but you know, I can't fault the man for for wanting to do something and maybe he didn't have the clearest vision for the whole picture but there were pieces for me that I think I would I would set apart and say you don't need to watch the whole movie but this is worth watching this segment it's nice I feel like we need to throw in the uh, conversation around Josh Trank with a conversation around Peter Deming uh, DP uh, Peter yeah. Deming uh, you know he's the cinematographer on the New Mutants that ought to be oh, interesting after this oh, one, right? Oh. Um, so, but but he was also behind Mulholland Drive. So you talk okay. about somebody who's able wow. to do, and you know, he was the Twin Peaks, and and yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so you, you talk about somebody who's who's able to to come up with some really beautiful, strong imagery. The problem I have with this is they did come up with some beautiful, strong imagery and some strong use of camera, and then they use the same tropes over and over and yeah. over and over yeah. and over again. Please. Yes. If I get one more look at the back of Capone's head, I'm going to close my head in the car door. It's just it's it is it was very frustrating the sort of visual repetition of of the movie to me. So I'm yeah. curious what you guys Well, if you compare you it to those other movies and of course I'm I'm you know, fingers crossed. I I think out of everyone in the next real universe, I'm probably the most fingers crossed about the new mutants because I, I love the IP on that. But um, but if you think about Mulholland Drive, um, it's different than what you've said it is the best hope for this movie, where we have this character-driven piece yeah. that we, we, we set up the characters and we watch them do our thing. So I think, um, you know, if we want to say that's why you get that repetition here is because my guess is that Deming is going to it and saying... Uh, set it up for the characters to to give me something on screen uh, over and over. Yeah. Now, back of the head, notwithstanding, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I I I wasn't blown away by the camera in this, and I think um, again the the best thing we can say for this movie is that it tries it, it tries to be a character piece, and I think the camera reflects that. Unfortunately, I I agree with Steve about the the underwater shot um, after the, the, the tidal wave and that kind of stuff. I think that stuff is really interesting. I think, I think there is some creativity and insight in those pieces, but it, throughout the film, there was just, just wasn't enough of it to, to compel me to, to be enjoying, enjoying the camera. At all. I've got to list some more credits. I, I, we, frankly, okay. we've talked about Peter Deming before on the show. I'll get to that in a moment, but started out with uh, evil dead Two. come on purple people eater house party, uh, Book of Love, My Cousin Vinny, just talked about that one pretty recently on the Sat Mat. Um, uh, Joe's Apartment, musical singing Cockroaches, Scream 2, 3, and 4, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, uh, If These Walls Could Talk from Hell, those are two different movies, uh, <laughs> it, it Twisted I Heart Huckabees, uh, The Jacket, wow. Rumor Has It, Lucky You, the love guru Marishka Hargitay. Was that that one? Am I thinking yes. of a different movie? Anyway, yes. Drag Me to Hell, Cabin in the Woods, y'all. Wow. Uh, right Oz, next to Oz, the, the great, great and, and powerful. powerful. <laughs> uh, now you see me too. So, I mean, you know, that's a hodgepodge of his many, many credits. And I, I think 
you know, Peter Deming is an, is truly, he's a great cinematographer. And so I wonder what kind of sort of visionary, visionary breakdown they, they, they had, you know, you made a point earlier uh, about wondering if there's movie that was cut from this movie. It's only an hour 43. Like it's a short film. There's room for more story story. Yeah. So anyhow, one of the things that's interesting about the credits on the film is that hair and makeup had 19 people listed in the makeup department. Yeah. And those were all for Tom Hardy's nose. No, I don't know. Um, (laughs) It, 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 uh, they, they they spent their money there. Uh, And I think, uh, I think you see it. I think, it, it it wasn't transformative for you, Pete. I I just think. I mean, imagine what it was like going into work every day as Tom Hardy for this for yeah. this role. He was constantly oh. uh, uh, made up in 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 full everything, and they change it too as he deteriorates. Yeah, Ugh. I I have to say, you know, as someone who is forty nine years old right now, it hurts, man. I oh my god, because I, I thought. I was like, wait, how old is he? Because I thought, oh, he's got to be like, you know, in his 60s or something. It's like 48. Yeah. Man lived a rough life. I think the two of you have had uh, exponentially less constancy of cigars and stress. Yeah. He only only turned it around to smoking carrots very late in his life. (laughs) That hit me too. I'm not 49. I'm I'm, Uh. I'm just a couple years behind you guys. But yeah, I was shocked. I even heard it in the film. And I yes. didn't really yeah. process it until I was writing the rundown for this. And I went, yeah. wait, 48. That He's <laughs> no way. The, yeah. yeah. I, um, I Well, I thought about that just the second May walks in, Linda Cardellini. I'm like, wow, yeah. Capone's granddaughter looks great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. What now, wife? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right. The uh, music. Uh, I think this is uh, a first time uh, score maker and i i'm not exactly sure about that but i had read something oh no there's a bunch of different things from the soundtrack but this is a hip-hop artist that goes by lp um and the real name of that person is in the rundown jamie Milline or Milline. um i think uh i think the soundtrack the score in particular has a lot to do with uh, the way that we view this film and and going to what you were talking about in the intro, Steve, where it's not really sure what it is. There was a lot of uh, drama that was felt by the score that I didn't feel. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. if if the if the angle for this film was horror, like you mentioned, you could uh, tweak the soundtrack quite a bit mm-hmm. to uh, to take it that direction. Um, I just. I, I never really vibed with the score here like that, but I'm I, I'm excited that there's a new person here that's doing a, 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 screen, a score that I haven't heard before. LP. That I didn't really pay much <laughs> attention to the music, and I think that's that's probably says most of it. Well, it wasn't hip hop music, and yeah, no. <laughs> he's a hip hop artist, so you know maybe that's a thing too. Uh, we've got all the movies we've talked about on this show ranked over at flickchart.com slash TNR film board. Flickchart is a wonderful site where you can create a tournament style stack ranking of your movie preferences. So check it out and find out how your film favorites fare against ours. Pete is running the show tonight on Flickchart. What do we got? How about Capone versus Beirut? Beirut. Beirut, yes. Hey, Beirut for me too. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, how about Capone versus Japanese Wolverine? The Wolverine. Japanese Wolverine. <laughs> yes, Wolverine. Yes, Excellent. Wolverine. <laughs> now it gets fun. 
<laughs> about Capone versus Oz the Great and Powerful. See, now I ranked this on my flick chart, my personal flick chart too, and I actually put Capone over Oz the Great and Powerful. Really? I don't know that I still feel that way. So I want to hear what you guys have to say, um, because I think I would change the vote that I had on my personal flick chart based on that. It's been a long time since I've seen Oz. And I think on that film board, I was a, I think I defended that film more than, than the others. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I know there's problems with it, but I would take that over Capone. Definitely. I think uh, looking at the two movies, I, I just have, I don't. I didn't like Oz the Great and Powerful, and I also have more fun watching it. It, it even just judging it as a visual spectacle, um, it's it's got some things going for it. Thank you, Peter Deming. Oh, oh, here we go. How about Capone versus Child Forty Four? Oh, see, it's oh. about time. I'm gonna say. <sighs> oh, I was going too fast for that one. <laughs> Anyone else have an idea? <laughs> Take a I, knee, JJ. Too uh, fast. <laughs> too fast. I was ready, and then I said, wait. Um, I think I'm going to pick Child 44. Yeah, I didn't have as many issues with Child 44 as, as the gents did on the film board, and that may have been one of those experiences of just like tonight where you sort of just feed each other, and it just yeah. inflames, you know, and just, uh, yeah, there's problems with it. But again, as we, I think we've consistently said, there's no story here. That's... Yeah. That's All right. when it comes to, yeah. I'm with Child 44. That's weird. <laughs> How about Capone or Guns Akimbo? Oh, wow. Oh, that was just last month, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Oh. It's the quarantine, the battle for the quarantine king. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick Guns Akimbo. Yeah, because that's just... Yeah. Richard yeah. T. can say it, Steve. I, well, here's the thing is, I... <laughs> I'm trying to think about how I felt. I mean, I wasn't angry at the end of Capone. I mean, I was pr- more bored than anything yeah. in, in some parts. But it, there are sequences that work really well. And I'm just trying to think how offensive some things in Guns Akimbo were. But I'm Capone on this. So we have a split. Yeah, because yeah, I, there's some things where it's like, I'm going to I'm gonna skew to the arty side sometimes. Not that this is great art. But I... I Guns Akimbo left a bad taste in my mouth on, on some things. On I feel, that. I feel and okay and about I'm all that. about like, you know, John Wick and just, you know, gun gun foo and all yeah. of that stuff. And uh, but that's not what that is. I will go Capone. How about Capone or the Monuments Men? Oh, see? Now Monuments Men! Yet. Love me, my Monuments Men. <laughs> Where are you? I'm at? Monuments Men too, JJ. So. Okay. Let's just go on then. I don't want right. to. I don't want to say either name. <laughs> that puts, wow, that puts Capone at number ninety on our flick chart. Uh, that is behind the Monuments Men at eighty nine, and it's ahead of Guns Akimbo at ninety one, and Black Hat at ninety two, which is the end <laughs> of the list. Okay. Well, and you know, we talk about this, you know, we're in quarantine now, we're we're having these difficulty, like, sourcing new movies as they're coming out, but um, I think Capone is going to see a better release from being video here. I think it would be largely ignored and forgotten if it were in the cinema, um, and I think... I think more people are going to see it now because it's here. Uh, I don't know that that's going to be better for it. But, you know, I was talking before about how the company that released it talked about we had a record sales, <laughs> record yeah. rentals when it was released on May 12th. It's made $2.5 million in 10 days. 
and it was a $20 million budget. So regardless, it's not, uh, it's not changing the landscape for, uh, for anyone in terms of what it's doing rental wise. So, um, I think part of the reason guns and guns akimbo and Capone are so low is because of quarantine. And I think we will remember that in future votes here. Okay. So I, it's not like for me and I rated it a 1.5 stars and most of that 1.5 is really on the acting performances there. Yeah. Steve. Uh, yeah, it's a not like for me, and that's a rare thing for me because I just I feel like indifferent to this. And I, I'm at one and a half because, again, I, I'm all, I, I can I can go artsy, but it just there was no logic to it. And then we don't have a story to back it up. So 1.5 for me. This movie was definitely not for me. It, it came in at 1394 out of 1451 on my flick chart, which is pretty close to the bottom and i've watched a lot of bad movies so it's it's in in fair company there but according to the algorithm it should be a zero star uh, over at letterboxd uh it, it's it is a four percent and uh i'm not going to give it i'm i am feeling gracious with my stars and i will give it that full-throated supportive one star for the performances. Uh, well, and, but well no the heart. thing about that, Pete, is that you're the most honest of all of us. Yeah. Then. <laughs> Only because you're on the low side. But yeah. You know uh, what? I started at one and a half and it's our conversation that drove me down. I don't know how that, uh, how you guys yeah. haven't been more afflicted by what I we've just it. been talking about. I believe it. I, I, I'm leaving what I left, what I put there before we started. So that's yeah. why. I, right. I, I don't feel good about changing later. But anyway, uh, what's next? Where do we go from here? We, uh, you know, we talk about struggling to find quarantine movies. Uh, we don't really know how things are coming up, but we have seen some news about releases that are coming up. And one that's coming up here in June that we're planning on talking about is The King of Staten Island. It is with Pete Davidson from SNL, and it's it looks to be sort of an autobiographical turn. So that's coming out June 12th, so we're going to stream it then. And then after that, in July, we've had the big news that... The movie for the stage show of Hamilton is going to be released on Disney Plus. So we're going to hit that on the holiday weekend. Uh, not sure where everything will stand in, with quarantine at that time, but I am so excited for that in July. Um, I, I think on the music alone, it's going to <laughs> rank pretty high on my flick chart. Uh, for uh, the main show, Pete, uh, what series are you guys in now? I, th- I saw you guys did The Birdcage just recently. Is that right? We- did we did we're doing it's kind of a combo series that we're right in the middle of we're doing the films of francis weber both the films that he's written and uh some that he he's directed and and uh he's also a movies and their remakes guy because he's a french filmmaker and he did la cage au folle and the dîner du con and uh the dinner game and those are are funny french character farce films and only two of the many films that American, you know, the film industry has decided need to be remade. And so we also did The Birdcage, which just released this week, and Dinner for Schmucks is coming up uh, in in two weeks. So we, we've got these two pairs of Francis Faber and his remakes, and it has been a lot of fun and sometimes frustrating. Uh, but we get all in, into that in the show. Nice. I'm a big fan of The Birdcage, so I I definitely will listen to that show. Oh, it's terrific. 
Uh, all you awesome people listening out there should come to join us on Discord at thenextreel.com. Click on the cool button at the bottom of the page to let us know you want to connect on our server. There we gather with our fun film family and discuss lots of remarkable things from throughout the entertainment universe. On Discord, you will find boards to chat about all of our shows. So come online with us to join the gang. It's a simple initiation with no hazing. We promise. And that's where we'll keep the conversation going. But for this one, say goodnight, Pete Wright. <laughs> and one more word from Steve Sarmento. Hondo. At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 